this is part two of uh, the message we started last week on the, uh, the Spirit's assurance of glory. Uh, today our passage will be in uh, Romans 8 verses 23 through 20, um, 27. And um, I'm going to read for us, but I'm going to back up and I'm going to start reading at verse 19. The word of the Lord reads, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirits, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray, to, what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in a word of prayer. Lord, as we open your word, um, may you... May you give us understanding. And Father, Lord, the truths that are found in here, may you be the one that plants them deep within us, that we may walk in obedience to you. Father, Lord, we ask that you, uh, you would be our teacher for the next few moments. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the eighth chapter of Romans, as we've, uh, as we've been walking through this, is really the, the, the Spirit's work in the believer's life. And the um, and as the Spirit works, it's uh, and we look at the result of our salvation. We have union with Christ. We are freed from the law. Uh, we have a new regenerate hearts, and there is now no condemnation. But we will struggle with sin, uh, and we will continue, and that will continue as long as we are in these fleshly bodies. But there is a no longer any condemnation for the believer, and we're kind of faced with that question: How can this be? And it's because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is, is laying out here, is how there is no condemnation status in the believer who still struggles with sin. But it's the work of the Spirit that is within us because we are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the promise is fulfilled. As we look back at chapter 8, verse 4 was that freedom from sin and death. Uh, verse 5 through 11 was a change in our nature. We are no longer enslaved to the, our sinful nature, we now have a new ruling authority, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in our lives. <clears throat> Verses 14 through 17, the Holy Spirit confirms our adoption. We are now adopted children. We are children of God, the believer. Then verses 18 through 30, which we were in last week and we are going to be working through this week and next week, the Holy Spirit guarantees our future glory. Now, last week we began a, a two-part message in the Spirit's guarantee of our glory. And uh, if you weren't here last week or if you missed the two points uh, from last week, it, starting in verse 18, it was this incomparable future glory 
then it was the creation's longing for glory. This week, the kind of two points we will have are going to be the groaning of the believer and the intercession of the Holy Spirit. So just a quick recap from last week is that um, Paul makes it clear in verse 18 that sufferings that we face are nothing compared to the glory that we will receive um, as we await the return of Christ. Uh, We discuss the groaning and longing of creation. And we use the process of elimination to determine what Paul was referring to when he says creation. Uh, We know it's not angels because angels aren't subject to to defilement of sin. It's not the demons and Satan because there is their fate is already sealed. It's not the believer because we'll get to that today. Believer is addressed in verse 23. And it's not the unbeliever because an unbeliever has no hope. They hope in this world and in this life. There is not an expected future hope. So when Paul speaks of creation, what he's saying is that creation is the, what is referred to as maybe the non-rational. It's plants, animals, dirt, rocks, seas, planets, stars. That is the creation he's, t- he's referring to. This is the creation that is groaning. And the creation has been cursed because of the sin of man. And which is interesting as we unpack this is it's, is it's subjected to it unwillingly. It has been cursed not because anything it did. It's because of man. And creation cannot be what it is fully meant to be because of the curse that God has subjected to it because of the sin of man. And what was really just, just that, that eye-opening portion of that was that creation is looking forward to the revealing of the sons of God, the revealing of the true believers, what the true believers will be, will be at Christ's return. So as we look forward to Christ's return, all of creation is looking forward to that moment in which we will be made new in the resurrected bodies. So creation isn't just looking forward to Christ's return, it's looking forward to when we as believers will be made new. Um, and that word groaning, uh, in its context, it's a it's a, uh, a lament, uh, a sigh. It could be translated as a sigh. It's uh, due to an undesirable circumstance, um, a longing to be delivered from your, uh, your undesirable circumstances. This groan is uh, it's an anticipation of something better. It's not a, a groan of like there is no hope, but a groan of hope, knowing there is something better. Uh, it's a lament of that current situation. And we see this, this language used Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, uh, David used this in Psalm 38, verse 9. He says, O Lord, my longing is before you. My sighing, that sighing would be the same as groaning, from this body of death. I'm sorry. It it, it says, my sighing is not hidden from you. So David, he, he realizes his current state and his sighing, his longing to be relieved from the sinful nature. And Paul, in Romans 7 as he unpacks the, the reality of, of, how, of, of how we're bound to sin, his response at the end of verse 24 is, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This is the current state that the believer finds themselves. And these, these believers understand this. These two men that we look at in Scripture, David and Paul, they know this current state. It's this, it's this already but not yet. There is a future to look for, and they long to be delivered. And Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, the Second Corinthians chapter 5, he says, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, 
being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So meaning this fleshly body would be, would be remade new and full of life and true life that is found through Christ. So that, that fulfillment of the promise of salvation. I mean, wouldn't it be great to just completely rid ourselves of humanness and sinfulness? It would be. But right now we wait. And we wait along with creation. As creation groans, the believer groans as well. And that brings us into verse 23, that first point, the groaning of the believer. There are three groanings that we look at in this passage. Being the groaning of creation, and now we get to the groaning of the believer, and we'll get to the groaning of the Holy Spirit. So verse 23, and this is not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So every true believer at some point, agonizes over the appalling manifestation and consequences of sin. At some point, the, the, the believer is hit with the magnitude of your sin. It, it, it's not always there, but there are moments that you should look to that you can say, yes. Uh, for me, it would be the point I can say that I was truly converted. It was like the magnitude of not just my sins, but who it was I sinned against. And this, this magnitude, it, 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 it hits the true believer. And because we have the first fruits of the Spirit, we've had a little bit of, of foretaste of the glory that awaits. We, we've, you've been given a glimpse, but it's not completely fulfilled. So there is a longing for, as we wait for the fulfillment of the adoption and this redemption, from this current body we groan. Our souls are already redeemed. When we come to saving faith and we, we have received the redemption of our souls. So when we say soul, we're talking about the inner being, the inner man. The, sometimes it'll be referred to as a heart. It's a new creation. It's been regenerated by God. But the body is the problem. And this is not just the physical body, but it's all that goes with being human. That human nature that we're, we're, still, um, we're still bound to. Our souls have been adopted, but our bodies we wait. We are waiting for the fulfillment. Because <clears throat> we are not who we will be. And creation is waiting for that revealing of who we will be. The Puritan pastor Thomas Watson, he, he writes about this current state of the believer. He says, The godly may act faintly in religion. The pulse of their affections may beat low. The exercise of grace may be hindered as when the course of water is stopped. Instead of grace working in the godly, corruption may work. Instead of patience, murmuring. Instead of heavenliness, earthliness. Thus lively and vigorous may corruption be in their regenerate. In their regenerate, they may fall into enormous sin. But though their grace may be drawn low, it is not drawn dry. Though grace may be abate, it is not abolished. Grace may suffer an eclipse, not, not dissolved. A believer may fall from some degree of grace, but not from the state of grace. What, what he's saying here is that the believer can fall into sin just as easily as before you were saved. You could still fall into it. 
but you're not going to stay in that state. It's not going to be a continual state of sin. And, and not, don't let us be arrogant that this won't happen to us. It can easily happen to us that we would fall into that. That's why we, we are watchful, we are mindful. But scripture teaches that the believer's salvation is secure by God the Father, by the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. It is secured by the Father. We can look at 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse, uh, verses 3 through 5, where Peter emphasizes that God the Father, by his own initiative and power, caused us to be born again. And in the same power, he preserves our inheritance um, that our salvation brings, an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled. Whoever belongs to God belongs to him forever. Then we look at the Son. Um, in John uh, six thirty seven, Jesus declares, All the Father gives me, will come to me, and I will certainly not cast them out. And Paul reinforces the same teaching that in 1 Corinthians. It says, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gifts, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The ongoing intercessory work of Jesus Christ secures our eternal glory. So you've got the Father, you've got the Son, now the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit secures a believer's salvation by what is referred to as the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And you think about a seal. Um, in ancient times, kings would use seals to put like their official signature. Uh, if you remember the, the account of Daniel in the lion's den, as Daniel's put into the, the lion's den and they put a big stone over it, King Darius seals it meaning that nothing is going to change from this. I have put my royal seal on it. So it'd be a wax seal and they'd stamp it with a ring. Ephesians uh, chapter one, verse 13, it says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the royal seal, the kingly seal. You were secured in him. In Christ you, after listening to the message of the gospel, after having believed, were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit promise. There is no such thing of salvation that is not present and also future. For the person who is justified is also glorified. And this is why we groan, because we know that we have been adopted. We know this is true. And we are waiting for this final manifestation of what we will be when when we're redeemed, not just our souls redeemed as they are now, but when our bodies are redeemed. Now, believers, we should be concerned about sin in our lives. Uh, I mean, not because we're trying to secure ourselves in God's grace, not, you know, that we, we have to hold on to our salvation. He has secured our future. But until we are glorified and fully freed from sin, our redemptive bodies, it is very possible for sin to cause us harm and to grieve the Lord. So this is why we should be on the lookout and, and always be concerned about sin. And we groan on this. And, and John MacArthur says on this, uh, this current state of, of being caught in this, it says, The believers are already new creation, possessing the divine nature. Their souls are fit for heaven and eternal glory. They love God, hate sin, and have a longing for obedience to the word. But while on earth, they are kept in bondage by their mortal bodies which are still corrupt by sin and its consequences. 
Christians are holy seeds encased in an unholy shell, incarcerated in a prison of flesh and subject to its weaknesses and imperfections. We, therefore, await an event that is divinely guaranteed but is not yet transpired, the redemption of our bodies. We are imprisoned to the flesh until we are released. And just like a seed, you think about a seed, a seed has to die. A seed has to die to reveal truly what it is. Well, we plant something in the ground, it's this little seed, and you know, uh, something completely different comes out of the ground. The same is with us as believers. This fleshly prison, one day we'll, we'll die. And it will be revealed what we truly are. So we as believers, we wait with groaning and the, the, these, these lamentations, just lamenting our current state until either we are called home to be with the Lord or until Christ returns. In verse 24, um, we, we get into this hope where Paul is speaking of. He says, for in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes and what is seen. So we wait. So we're waiting in hope. The, um, our salvation was planned by God in ages past. It was granted to us in the present and is now identified by hope in its future completion. The hope of believer is not some kind of wishful thinking. It, it is a hope in, in who God is and what he has promised. Now, once again, when you go back to John 6, where Jesus says, all the Father gives me it will come to me. And I will not cast them out. Our hope is found in the guarantee of the Lord. The book of Hebrews, in chapter 6, verse 18, it says in that, that it is impossible for God to lie. In verse 19, following that, it is impossible for God to lie. Hope is an anchor for our souls. God cannot lie. He has promised. He has sealed it. He is immutable. He doesn't change. So our hope is in something that's not fleeting, but it's something that will come to pass. In 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, Paul refers to the hope of salvation as a helmet, signifying our divine protection from blows of doubt. Um, in Pilgrim's Progress, I will continually refer to that. There is a scene, uh, and here I hear in the cartoon, it's pretty uh, pretty dark scene. But Christian, he, he, as he's on his pilgrimage, he receives his armor. He receives his armor, our, our armor from Ephesians, and he has his helmet, and he has to battle Apollyon. Apollyon being Satan, and his armor protects him. And what Paul says here is that you know, that helmet of salvation, your security, is what protects you from the blows of doubt. And, and I just think back to that imagery of, of Christian. He, 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 is, he doesn't think he's going to make it, but his armor is protecting him. So the completion of our salvation is hope and not yet a reality for us. Paul continues with hope that is seen is not hope. For why hope? Why does one hope for what he sees? He's kind of stating the obvious, right? I mean, if you can see it, is it really hope? If you can achieve it, is it something you, I mean, is, is it something you really hope for if it's right here? Like, I really hope that I have water. Am I really hoping? I mean, I've got my water right here. So it's hope is, um, 
So he's stating the obvious that, that in this life, we cannot experience the reality of our glorification, but we can only hope in it. We can't fully experience this. And this is interesting because this brings up a, a, a false doctrine that is um, just grown into something massive today. And it spawned out of the Methodist movement. And when you look at the Methodist movement, it, it was all about the methods of worship. You know, we are going to methodically, we are going to read our scripture. This is how we're going to pray. We're going to be um, just really rigid in our, our approach, our methods. And even John Wesley, who was the father of the Methodists, saw a fallacy in it that we would begin to think of it. These are the ways in which we approach our righteousness. And it has, it, it can respond into this, um, into this thought and really, and, and kind of more extremely left-wing charismatic churches has really spawned into this thought that you can completely achieve righteousness and sinlessness in this life. But Romans 8, Paul completely obliterates that teaching. You're in prison to this flesh. You are bound to this flesh until you're completely glorified, till your salvation is complete. When you start thinking that I can obtain this, I can do this, I can be sinless, do you notice the theme? It's I, it's me. It's not about him, what he has done. And that's what these teachings lead us to, to have hope and confidence in ourselves and not what he has done. You know, the, the God that has set our salvation into work in eternity past, he reveals it to us now and secures it in the future. It is all glory to him, not to us. That is the danger. Was John Wesley wrong in, in setting a standard for the way that he was going to live his life? No. But the danger is when, when we begin to try to flesh this out in this sinful flesh. And when we get to verse 30, we will see that our salvation is so secure that glorification is, is spoken of in past tense as it's already happened. It's so secure. Uh, Philippians 1, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, it says, I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So he began it, he will finish it. That is the hope. That is what we look for. Because salvation is completely God's work and because he cannot lie, it is absolutely impossible for the believer to lose what, has, what he, God, has given us and promised to never take away. It is impossible to lose it. That is the believer's hope. Hope in what he has done. It's the perseverance of the saints. The true believer can never lose their salvation. So we eagerly await, groaning the state that we are in, looking forward to, a, to our future glory. And we groan. Now there's one more glory that we're going to look at. And this is the glory of the Holy Spirit. And we find this is in our last two verses, verses 26 and 27. So the groaning of the Holy Spirit. It reads, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what, what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints 
according to the will of God. So when we, when, as this verse starts out, it says, likewise, this is pointing back to the groanings of the creation and to, of the believer, uh, the groaning for the, the redemptive state to come to fruition. And we see here, it's a very comforting truth that the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us in groaning for the day of our restoration. Because our remaining human nature is susceptible to sin and to doubt, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. And when we look at weakness, this isn't referring to anything specific. This is just a general overall, in your flesh, you are spiritually weak. There are no spiritually strong people. Because ultimately, when you look to Christ, our example, we are all weak because we are bound by the flesh. And Paul speaks of that in, um, when he talks about his, in Corinthians, his uh, thorn in the side. And it's very interesting as you read that. Because he talks about being called up to the third heaven, and he's not—he's referring to himself in the third person. It's very—it's very odd the language he uses. But he even says that he received this. He prayed for it to be removed. The Lord did not see fit. He, the Lord said, "My grace is enough to keep him humble." He had been so much had been revealed to him. The Lord kept him that to remind him to keep him humble. That he was still bound to this flesh. So we. We are not spiritual giants. We are always going to be spiritually weak until the day that our bodies have been redeemed. And when we look at it in our lives, when we walk in obedience, when we live our holy lives, it only happens through the power of the Spirit working through us. The Spirit supplies all that we need to be faithful, effective children of God. Philippians three thirteen says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The Spirit works in us to do what we could never do alone, bringing about the perfect will of God. And to demonstrate this, the Spirit's work in us, Paul uses the example of prayer. And, and it's interesting that he goes to prayer. It, it, out of all things, he goes to prayer. But, um, you know, although that we are redeemed, we are secure in our adoption, He says, we do not know how to pray as we should. Because of our imperfect perspective, our finite minds, our human weakness, and our spiritual limitations, we are not able to pray consistently with God's will. And and kind of think about that. How often is there a spiritual need that we may know after the fact you never knew was a need that you should have prayed for or could have prayed for? Or you pray for something and something completely different happens because we are bound to this flesh, that finite mind, that, that imperfect perspective. We don't see it all. We're not all knowing. So really, even when we're faithful in our prayers, that, that we pay, pray regularly, we, we, and we're sincere, we cannot possibly know God's will. But the Spirit, it intercedes for us. Um, Luke 22 one of, uh, one of my favorite little, little encounters with Peter. You know, Peter is this brash, bold, kind of, you know, he's matter-of-fact uh, kind of guy. And, you know, he's, he's being that, you know, he's telling Christ that I will never walk away. I'm, I'm be with you all the time. And in Luke 22, Jesus tells him, he says, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. 
but I've prayed for you. There's so much that comes out of that passage. One being, who is sovereign here? Satan has asked to sift Peter like wheat. Satan isn't doing this on his own accord. He has to have permission. God is allowing Peter to be sifted like wheat. But what happens? Christ intercedes on his behalf. And as we find out, as we continue reading, Peter's no match for Satan at all. He wasn't even a match for the taunts of a little girl and a couple of guys standing around a fire. But fortunately, the Lord interceded for Peter before this had even came to pass. Could we in our human nature have known? Could, could Matthew had known that Peter was going to face this, that he needed to be prayed for in this regard? No, only God did. So the Spirit intercedes for us. And what a glorious truth that, that to know that our security rests in the Lord's faithfulness and not our own. So the Spirit himself intercedes for us, bringing our needs before God, even when we don't know what they are or when we pray about them unwisely. I don't know how many times I've prayed about something that, you know, asking for a certain thing and that, yeah, that was completely not what was needed. But, but the Spirit is interceding for us on our behalf. And the Spirit does not simply provide, provide our security, but he himself is our security. The Spirit, it, in, it intercedes in a way that is totally um, beyond human comprehension, with groans too deep for words. Uh, the Holy Spirit groaning here is, um, it's groaning with us and our desire to be freed from our current state, our current bondage. And the groaning is not some unknown language. It's not some heavenly tongue. Because you look at it, it says, too deep for words. It is actually a groaning that is not even really audible. It can't even be expressed. Um, well, my alarm, when I have to go in really early, say my alarm goes off at 2 o'clock in the morning, I, I make groaning noises. There's no interpretation of what those noises mean other than, I really wish that I could have another few hours of sleep. I'm really lamenting my current state. And the Holy Spirit here, it, it's, it's nothing that can be translated. It, it's nothing like that. It's a groaning that is inaudible to the, for human words, too deep for human words. <clears throat> Now, Paul says that the groans that are not even audible, they can't even be expressed. So it's not, like I said, some foreign, you know, some heavenly language, as some televangelists will tell you. Um, it's not what he's talking about. <clears throat> See, we remain justified and righteous before God only because the Son and the Holy Spirit are our constant advocates representing us before him. In uh, the book of Hebrews is a wonderful demonstration of Christ. We could say solus Christus. It's all about what Christ has done. But in there, in chapter 7, it talks about how Christ, after he he was a sacrifice on the cross, he was risen, he resurrected, and to his ascension, he sat down. And this was a huge statement for Jewish people that the high priest sat down because the high priest never sat down because offerings had to be had to be performed constantly a high priest never sat so saying that christ as high priest sat down was a huge statement that meant that a final justifying sacrifice had been made so in in hebrews 
as he sat, as Christ has sat down in, in chapter seven, verse 25, it says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he, speaking of Christ, always lives to make intercessions for them. After justification, after that final sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for his, for his people, for the believers. John MacArthur says on this intercession, and this, this quote here kind of really brings, to, kind of brings home Christ's work in interceding for us and the Holy Spirit's intercession with us. It says, if it were not for the sustaining power of the Spirit and Christ's continual mediation for us as high priest, our remaining humanness would have immediately engulfed us again in sin the moment after we were justified. If for an instant Christ and the Holy Spirit were to stop their sustaining intercession for us, we would in that instant fall back into our sinful, damnable state of separation from God. But the never-ending work of Christ and the Holy Spirit interceding on our behalf, mediating on our behalf, it is impossible for that to happen. It is impossible for the flesh to engulf us once again. So the Spirit groans on our behalf. And our last verse, uh, verse 27, says, And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The he here refers to God and the hearts he searches for the heart of men. If you remember uh, back in uh, Samuel, when uh, uh, Samuel anoints David and he's looking for David as king, he goes to Jesse to look at, to meet all of his sons and he has all of his sons lined up except for David, of course. And God tells Samuel that you look on the outside, I look at the heart. I don't care what the outside, I'm the one that looks at the heart. If the Father knows the heart of men, how much more does he know the mind of the Spirit? We're getting into the Trinity, a very confusing aspect. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Father understands exactly what the Spirit is thinking as he intercedes for the saints according to his will. This passage, Paul emphasizes the divine intercession that is necessary for the preservation of believers preservation to eternal hope um, we can no more fathom how this works than we can fathom other aspects of salvation we're, we're getting into a, a portion here that it is beyond our comprehension and our finite minds but we know and we trust through the spirit we can believe these truths it is the spirit's work in us but we know if it were not for christ and the holy spirit that was on guard for our behalf our inheritance would be reserved in vain but we know that it's not because of their continual work. And as we've walked through this, uh, this is referred to as the doctrine of glorification. The future, the, 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 culmina the, the culmination of our salvation. And we can define the doctrine of glorification as this. It is the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ returns raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and reunites them with their soul and changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. All of this will happen in one moment. Every believer from, from the beginning 
until now and all that are walking the face of the earth upon Christ's return will all be brought together at one moment in time. It's the doctrine of glorification. And it's the spirit that ensures our future glorification. It ensures it within us. And this is a glorious reality for our eternal state as believers. This is our future. This is our hope. Our security is what God has done. And we wait for it eagerly. We groan as we wait and rest upon him. And as the reformers would say, they had the five solas, sola de gloria. To God alone the glory. It is to his glory alone. This is our hope. Our salvation is not yet complete. Are we secure? Absolutely. But this isn't it. This isn't it. There's a future glory to look to. And our hope is found in him and what he has done. And if you are a believer today, this is your hope. This is what you have to look forward to. No matter what the world around us may look like, our future is secure. If you're not a believer, as long as we walk this earth, the invitation is open. The Lord has said, those that call on me, you will be saved. Call out to him. Call out to him because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. This is our hope in the future glory, all that he has done. Scripture tells us that uh, he is faithful to save, that today can be the day of your salvation. One of my favorite um, little encounters Christ has is with a, with a man who he heals his son. And the man's response to him is, Lord, help with my unbelief. And, and that's a prayer every day, help with my unbelief. If you're struggling to believe this, ask the Lord to help with your unbelief. We can't lead you in some special prayer. All we can say is call out to him, and he is faithful to save. He is the one that gives us faith to respond to him. Is salvation all of God? Absolutely. But there's still a human response. We still must respond to him. <clears throat> Join me in word of prayer. Father, Lord, we thank you for the wondrous and glorious truths that we find in your word today. As we look forward to that future hope that we have in you, Father, Lord, we pray that you would help us and intercede for us as you do, that, that you would guide us and that, and Father, Lord, I know that you would help with our unbelief in times that we may doubt that we look to you because it's not about us. It's all about you. And Father, Lord, if there are any here that do not know you, Lord, I pray that they would, um, that you would draw them near and they would call out to you. Lord, we thank you that um, as we come together, as you have called us to do, that we, um, that we have that ability to worship you openly and freely, and may we never take it for granted. Father, Lord, I pray that as we go out this week, that these truths that we see, that our hope is not found here, but is found in the future, that you, Lord, that those truths would set home deep with us within our hearts, and it would cause us to live our lives to your glory and to your glory alone. Father, Lord, we thank you, and we ask this prayer in Jesus' name.